Our scripture reading this morning is Romans 14, verses 13 to 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Riding my bike on Friday of this last week along the New River Canal, uh, and I had my helmet on, but the helmet has holes in it, you know, it makes it lighter. It makes it breathe a little bit easier. And so I'm cruising down the sidewalk, and I notice something coming out of the corner of my eye, flying into my helmet. And right afterwards, I felt a sting on my head. And as soon as I felt it, I freaked right out. (laughs) I started swinging my hands around. I knocked my headphones out of my ear. And I was trying to get the strap undone from the helmet while I'm trying to ride the bike and not crash it. And so I'm trying to get the, the bike down on the ground while I'm trying to figure out what's going on up here. I got stung. I don't know what's happening, but something's not right. And so I throw my helmet off on the ground, and as it hits the ground, a bee bounces out of it. And I'm pretty sure I can figure out now what happened. The bee flew into my helmet, one of the holes there, couldn't get out, and stung me in the head. The irony here, of course, is that if I was not wearing my helmet, it would have been a safer bike ride. (laughs) But I I knew in that moment, as soon as I felt something, that I needed to do something about that. Uh, I actually intended to wear my Pastor Mal hat this morning to cover it. You can probably still see where it hit me. But I figured I'd use it as a sermon illustration instead. I wasn't about to ride another five miles back to my home with a bee in my bonnet. As soon as I felt that sting, I knew I had to do something. That sensation of a sting is your body's way of letting you know that you need to do something. It's a warning sign. Hey, heads up, you better pay attention. You're under attack. If I felt that sting and I just ignored the signal, that mysterious pain, without trying to do anything to address it, well, that would be pretty odd. You'd think, well, there's something odd. Why is, why is he not trying to do something about that pain? There must be something off about him. In a healthy body, when everything is working as it's supposed to work, you are supposed to pay attention to those sorts of signals. Those pain receptors are sending to your brain. They're trying to tell you something that something is not right. This is the message they're trying to get across to you. Your body has 
pain receptors by design. They are a gift of God for our good. And in a similar way that is a little bit harder to describe, God has also given us moral pain receptors that make us aware of what we believe to be right or wrong. We call it the conscience. The conscience is actually a pretty complicated subject. We all have a conscience, and each of our consciences is attuned to God's will to a greater or lesser degree than one another. None of our consciences are perfectly accurate. And our sermon text today tells us that we need to, as a general rule, obey our conscience, that inner awareness of what we believe to be right or wrong. We need to obey that. The last time we were in Romans, we read about some of those Christians here in in Rome. Some of them had a Jewish descent, and so part of their tradition was to have certain restrictions over what they ate and what days they observed, those holy days. And so these Jewish Christians thought that it was not right to eat meat and that it was not right to observe certain festival days or, or the Sabbath. They believed, their faith told them, that it would be offensive to God if they didn't continue to keep those strict Jewish regulations about their diet and their days. And some of the Gentile Christians in that same place in Rome didn't think that God would be offended in the slightest if they didn't eat, if they didn't observe those days and if they ate that meat. That was what their faith had told them because they knew, based on Christ's teaching, that he had declared all foods clean and that they no longer needed to consider one day better than the other. One group of these Christians in Rome, of the Jewish descent primarily, he calls the weak. They thought it would be wrong to do something. There's another group in the same church, whom he calls the stronger, who thought it would be right to do that same thing. So there's going to be a disagreement here. And Paul tells them both, hey, you're both trying to honor God. You're both trying to do this with thanksgiving to God. So don't judge and condemn one another over these kinds of things. Because in the end, we're each going to have to give an account to the Lord for our own consciences. He is, of course, the Lord of our conscience. He is the Lord, and his decisions, his judgments, are the ones ultimately that will matter. What's fascinating, though, in just sort of reading through this chapter is what Paul does not say. He makes his own stance clear. He does. He is convinced, based on Christ's teaching, that those with a weaker conscience are incorrect, They are wrong. But this is the interesting thing. He doesn't try to force those who are not yet persuaded, as he is, to change their ways. He doesn't say, listen, y'all just need to embrace your Christian freedom, go eat meat, and just like ease up on your calendars. That's not what Paul does. He does not do that. He says, as long as this isn't contradicting the gospel, as long as this isn't hindering our work together as the church, We should just be welcoming one another, not judging, not condemning one another over these sorts of things. Paul's overarching goal, as we've heard now for quite some time, is that he wants to build up gospel unity in this church for the sake of the mission of the gospel going out to the nations. And that flows into the passage that we're in this morning. He makes it very clear why he doesn't tell those with the weaker faith 
just to disobey their conscience and do something even though they think it's wrong because that would encourage them to disobey their conscience. And to disobey your conscience causes more harm than good. And so instead, Paul focuses on his instruction to the stronger in faith. He says, those whose faith allow them more freedom in what they are able to eat and drink and practice and do with a clean conscience, well, they need to be willing to restrain that Christian liberty out of love. The big idea for this morning's sermon is this. Do not use your Christian liberty to destroy your Christian siblings. Do not use your Christian liberty to destroy your Christian siblings. And we'll work through this in three sections. First, walk in love by restraining your liberty, verses 13 through 16. Second, God's church should be characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy, in verses 17 through 19. And then third, obey your conscience and encourage your brother to obey his, in verses 20 to 23. Let's pray before we start. Father, it is good to be able to dwell with one another in, in peace and in unity, And we pray this morning that you would help us by your spirit to embrace your message for us. We expect that you are here amongst us and speaking to us by your word through your spirit. And so we ask that you would work on our consciences this morning. Help us each to align our consciences to be more in line with your word. And help us to prioritize unity and walking in love with one another and having some humility with the way that we deal in some of these confusing issues. Father, we pray with great confidence knowing that this is your will for your church, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, walk in love by restraining your liberty in verses 13 through 16, and I'll just read that for us one more time. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So this concept of a stumbling block comes up here a few times in this passage. It comes up here in verse 13, a stumbling block or a hindrance. And then it comes up again in verse 20, as was read for us earlier. Paul has used this idea, this concept of a stumbling block already in the book of Romans. He used it before in chapter 9. And there in Romans chapter 9, Paul was writing about how some Jews were stumbling over Christ. They were rejecting the gospel because they didn't understand that the law was supposed to point them to Jesus so that they would embrace his righteousness as a gift. But they were trying to get their own righteousness through the law. And so they were stumbling over Jesus and not coming to the full conclusion of what the law was intending to point them to. It's a metaphor that is easy to picture. 
someone's walking down a road and they're doing just fine, they've got their eyes on the prize, end in mind, doing, doing their thing, minding their own business, and then someone puts a giant stone right in front of them. And as they're walking, they, they trip over that stone, they stumble and they fall. They might get slowed down, they might get injured, they might even stop their journey depending on how bad they've stumbled. So you think about that, some easy imagery, right? Now think about that in spiritual terms. You and I are each walking towards the heavenly city. You and I are each trying to honor God and give thanks to Him and serve Christ best we know how, hoping in Jesus, keeping that end in mind. How messed up would it be if one of your brothers and sisters who's on the same journey, going the same direction, turned around and put a stumbling block in front of you to make you trip and fall? You, of course, it's, it's not loving, at the very least. I like the analogy that Ryan Fields used earlier this week in kids' ministry and kids' club on Wednesday night. He said it's like in Mario Kart. If you throw a banana peel behind your cart because you're trying to make somebody on your team wreck, you'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you be doing that? You're not supposed to be... We're on the same team. Don't be making somebody stumble. But life is not a game. The stakes could not be higher. Notice the implications of what causing your brother to stumble might be. Look, look in verse 15. Notice what it says there in verse 15. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then notice again in verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. There's very serious consequences here. It is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. And it seems that this stumbling block that Paul is using as a, as a metaphor or as an illustration is influencing someone's spiritual downfall. To change someone's spiritual trajectory in life such that they might walk away from the faith altogether. Leviticus 19, that chapter that first tells Israel to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, says this. Chapter 19, verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Or we could think of the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or, or stumble is actually the same word. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea stark language here from our Lord. To cause someone to sin is the same root as hindrance here. Uh, verse 21 of Romans 14, to, to make another stumble. So if someone is blind, if someone is weak, your responsibility is to watch out for them. It's not to take advantage of them. It's not to, to promote yourself over their desires or their good. I just want us to really feel the gravity of what Paul is saying here. When we read in verse 15 that a brother is grieved by what you eat, that doesn't just mean that he's grossed out by the smell of the corned beef and cabbage that you just made for St. Patrick's Day. That's not the sort of grief that he has in mind here. It's actually something much more strong than that. It means he's grieved at your actions, and those, that grievance has made him spiritually distressed. It's to cause 
to someone to have a destructive pain inwardly and potentially to destroy this person's faith altogether. Let's look at these verses together. Verse 13 through 16. Just recapping the section, verse 13, he says, stop judging each other. He was talking about this before, don't judge one another. And he says, okay, if you, if you want to be all judgy, I know you guys, I know you want to be judgy. I got something better for you to judge. Judge this, make a decision not to trip your brother. Make that your decision. Verse 14, Paul believes that all food is clean. It means it's all cool to eat now. We're good, we can eat all of it. But if someone is persuaded that the food is unclean, it is as good as if it were unclean. In other words, if their conscience, internally their faith, is telling them that it is wrong to eat certain foods on theological grounds, then it actually would be wrong for them to eat those foods. Then verse 16, if you eat meat that someone else considers unclean in front of them, they might take the opportunity to call you out for that publicly. Uh, they might call your eating of the meat evil. They might blaspheme it, and they might turn it into a whole thing. And so Paul's like, just, when you get together at public meals, just don't, just don't do it. Just lay aside your Christian freedom. It's okay to eat the meat. I'm with you. But at your public meals together, just lay aside your freedom out of love so that your brother isn't grieved by what you're eating. Back to verse 15, walking in love. Walking in love is the primary lens that Paul is encouraging us to look at one another through. The lens that which we are supposed to approach the Christian life. We can look up, if you have your Bible there, if you look at the end of chapter 13 of Romans 2, or chapter 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. So this is a very consistent message that Paul is giving us here. It is unloving, it is unrighteous to allow your stronger conscience to grieve your brother. So here's the thing. The stronger one, the one with a stronger faith, a stronger conscience, might not actually be intentionally trying to grieve anybody on purpose, not trying to intentionally trip someone up. But even if it's through negligence, it's still inconsiderate. And that's the problem. Notice he reminds us how we ought to perceive one another as ones for whom Christ died. We are to perceive one another as ones for whom Christ died. It's important just to stop and note how central the gospel is for Paul, even in the midst of these instructions. He's basing all of these instructions on what God has done for us in Christ. The gospel is central to everything he's saying here. It's hard to imagine a more sobering filter through which to view brothers and sisters. You can imagine how much ridiculous quarreling would cease if we would look at one another and truly view one another and value one another as one for whom Christ died. I want to try something here. If you can, if you try to think of someone that you've had some sort of contention with recently, don't point, don't say names. Uh, hold that person, though, in your mind. Hold that person in your mind. Now, think of the love that Christ has 
for that brother or sister. While that brother was dead in his trespasses, still a sinner, Christ died for him. Jesus has welcomed that sister that you might be thinking of by grace through faith. And he intercedes for her to God the Father on her behalf, even now. Christ earned the right to be the Lord of your brothers and sisters by dying for them in particular, for whom Christ died. What greater love is there than that? What greater humility is there than that? Laying aside preferences for the good of one another. Okay, now to complete the process, remember that you need saving faith and grace just as much as that brother or sister does. You have a bond of fellowship with that brother or sister that is as deeply rooted as anything could possibly get. And the fruit of those deep roots that you share in the gospel ought to be righteousness and peace and joy. Let's keep reading verses 17 through 19. Second, God's church should be characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy. Verses 17 through 19 say this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. These verses, uh, I believe, are the heart of this passage. On both sides of this, in point one and in point three, those verses that we've labeled point one and point three, he talks about these three same things at the beginning and the end. He talks about not stumbling your brother. He talks about whether or not foods are clean or unclean. And he talks about not destroying the work of God. That's what's going on in one and three. And here in the middle seems to be his main emphasis, the thrust of his message. Paul knows that his audience is prone to judgmentalism. Paul knows that his audience is prone to quarrel over opinions. And so he's redirecting that that energy, if you will. Okay, don't condemn one another, but if you've got to judge, judge whether or not you're causing grief to your brother. Or, okay, don't chase one another down to quarrel over disputable matters and opinions. If you want to chase something, chase this. Pursue peace. Pursue whatever makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Pursue peace. Make that your new favorite. Strive after building one another up, not tearing one another down. Just redirecting that energy. If God's church in Rome, to whom Paul is writing, is meant to be an embassy representing God's kingdom on earth, like ours is supposed to be, then it should be marked by righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, just as God's kingdom is. Because that's what the kingdom of God is marked by. It's not first primarily about what can be eaten or drunk or not. Freedom to eat and drink with a clean conscience is not the ultimate goal of the Christian life, Uh, Some things, believe it or not, have a higher priority than that. Pursuing peace with your brothers and sisters ought to be way more important to you than what you have the freedom to eat or drink. 
that is not the primary thing on our list to pursue as Christians. Insisting on the ability to exercise your own rights and liberties within the church is not Christ-like. And Paul will talk about this more in chapter 15. We can cover that next week, Lord willing. In verse 17, verse 17, I take that righteousness there to be a description of how God's law is fulfilled through selfless love. As he told us about earlier in chapter 13, that righteousness is fulfilling the law through love. That righteousness then gives birth to peace within the community, and that peace blossoms into joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. It is the model after which every local church ought to aspire, at the very least. The Christian life is inescapably relational. We are individuals, we are saved together on purpose. We can't only pay attention to ourselves. We can't only pay attention to our own growth or our own stability. We have to keep an eye out for one another. You see, that's a clear application here from the text. To pursue something is to chase after it. So that requires effort, it requires forethought, it requires intentionality. Pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Mutual upbuilding might also be called edification, one of those Christian jargon terms. To edify is to build up. To edify is to build up. And so Paul calls the church, of course, we know, he calls the church the temple of God, which is a building. And we know that Peter calls Christians living stones which is to say that we are bricks that are being built up into that spiritual house. And so our responsibility towards one another is to build one another up with the common good of the whole in mind, the whole congregation, not just your own personal preferences and liberties, but the whole congregation. When you encourage a brother or sister to continue to hope in Christ, well, that's building them up. That's the opposite of tearing down the building. So when you see an area of need and then you quietly step in to help meet that need, well, that's you building up the church. In a church created by God with intentional diversity, on purpose, there will be areas of disagreement about certain things. Uh, Our scripture-bound consciences are not going to be in perfect alignment on every issue. We should not expect them to be. There is no reason to expect that they would be all in line with one another. And that's actually by design. There's not conformity here. There is unity, but not conformity. That's uncomfortable. It's a lot easier to go to a church where everybody looks like you and dresses like you and thinks like you and sings like you. Everything's the same. That's comfortable. That's easy. But friends, church is not meant to be comfortable. It's uncomfortable, yes, but church isn't meant for your comfort. There is a consumerist mindset that sometimes just needs to be called out and corrected that we sometimes bring into the church out of the world. The church isn't here first and foremost to provide services to meet your needs or expectations. Our instruction is to love one another self-sacrificially and deeply to gather to encourage, and to guard one another. 
And so if that is your aim, if when you're joining together with a church and that is what your aim is, you might actually find yourself surprised that you are built up in the act of building up other brothers and sisters. The church is not here first and foremost to provide services for you. It's for you to exercise your gifts to build up and thus be built up in so doing. One easy way to lay aside your preferences is to sing songs that are not your favorite. Every song we sing does not have to be your jam. It's okay. We actually love diversity in music here intentionally, intentionally stretching the boundaries of what we might be comfortable with. It may be that a song that you would not listen to on your own is very encouraging to a brother or sister, and they would be helped by hearing your voice sing it along with the congregation. One person arrives on a Sunday morning and asks, what are you going to sing for me today? Another person arrives and says, what can I sing for you today? And you can imagine which one would go home with a more satisfying Sunday morning experience. What other areas, though, are there? What other areas might there be where you would be able and willing to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding? When we see the need and we serve Christ by loving one another with righteousness and peace and joy as the ultimate goal, that is what is acceptable to God, verse 18. This is what is acceptable to God. It's a callback to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. As we present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, as an act of spiritual worship, notice how here in verse 18 it ends, we will be approved by men. Approved by men. That might strike you as odd because we're much more familiar with being persecuted for righteousness' sake rather than being approved for righteousness' sake. So how could our service to Christ be approved by man? What does this mean? Think of approval in this context in this way. It's been tested and tried, and it came out the other side successfully. That's how James 1 uses this same word. It's been tested. And so when something is tested, it's gone through the, the, the rigors, you can tell whether or not it's genuine by its ability to pass through. And so it's tested, it's been approved. And once it goes through, if it's genuine, then it's given a stamp of approval. Essentially, it's saying this is legit. It's genuine. And so here's what I take this to mean. When we live together as Christians... In the church, committed to one another, that is consistent with what we say that we believe, others can look on, mankind looks on, and they're like, yeah, that tracks. They're actually doing what they say they want to do. I'm holding up what they confess, and I'm holding up what they do, and it matches. It's tested, it's genuine, it seems to be something to this. They talk about forgiveness, and they actually do forgive one another. They talk about peace, and then they actually try to pursue it. They talk about service, and they actually do selflessly serve one another. They talk about sacrifice, and they're actually willing to lay down their freedoms and preferences for people who are not exactly like them. They talk about sin, and then they confess that they too themselves do still sin, that they need a Savior. They're not here to build up their reputations. They're not here to gossip. They're not here to fulfill their own needs. What's happening here is different. 
mankind looking on. What's happening here is different, and it is genuine. Every member is called to protect and preserve the unity of a church at the expense of your own comfort for the purpose of edification with the glory of God in mind, with the expected outcome that a community like that would be evangelistic. Let me walk through that process one more time. Every member is called to protect and preserve the unity of the church at the expense of your own comfort for the purpose of edification with the glory of God in mind, with the expected outcome that a community like that would be evangelistic. If someone walks in, they would say, surely God is among you. Our tight, relational, self-sacrificing community should actually be outward-facing, welcoming those who come, all those who are spiritually weary and seek rest, all those who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who strangers and want fellowship, and to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, this church is for you. That's the point. This is what we're all here for. That's what we all need, and we're here to offer it to one another in the name of Jesus Christ. And we are richly blessed here by the Holy Spirit with people who love to do just that. It's beautiful. Let's keep at it. This section closes, though, with a a call to some clear applications of this principle in point three, verses 20 to 23. Obey your conscience and encourage your brother to obey his. Verses 20 to 23 say this. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink or wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul here is repeating some of those same instructions that he gave earlier in verses 13 through 16, sort of in different words and with a different nuance, sort of a different approach. Don't destroy the work of God. Now, on an, on an individual level, as he already alluded to earlier, that is one for whom Christ died. Don't destroy the faith of your brother and sister. But on a, on a community level, we can think about this too. It could be that, that that temple that God is building up by his Holy Spirit is what he's saying, don't destroy that. Don't destroy the unity of these individual Christians here. Neither of those is good, obviously, But he reiterates the truth behind the liberty of those with a stronger faith, why they're able to enjoy everything. Everything is clean, he says. It's not offensive to God to eat meat. But if your actions are going to cause someone to see it and be stumbled by it, well, then that in and of itself actually is wrong. It would be wrong to eat that meat. Verse 22, that faith you have, keep it between yourself and God. And so that can, that can seem strange, especially if we read that verse out of context. Doesn't Paul want people to hear about the Christian faith? Why well, would he tell you to keep it private? 
Well, Paul's not telling them not to evangelize about the Christian faith. Not at all. He's speaking more narrowly about weaker faith or stronger faith, as he has throughout this chapter. He's saying, wherever you land on these issues, whether it's a stronger faith or a weaker faith, keep that between you and God. Remember, he is the Lord of your conscience, and we each will be accountable to him. Don't force your freedom or your restrictions, for that matter, on others in areas of genuine disagreement that are not sinful. And this might be a challenge to us because some of us don't have any thoughts that we don't think are worth sharing or publishing or spreading or tweeting. But we're not everything about our faith, whether it's strong or weak, needs to be vented for the world. This is what Paul is saying here. We are all maturing at different rates. And we're starting from different places. We have different cultural backgrounds. We have different past experiences. We have different sin struggles. Our consciences, our awarenesses of what is right and wrong, they're not going to be exactly the same as one another. Furthermore, it should be said that your conscience is not going to necessarily be exactly the same as what God believes is right and wrong. The word conscience does not appear in this passage, you might notice, but the concept is here. The concept of the conscience is here. This is a really important topic, and there's a lot more to say about the conscience than what we can say here just in this particular passage, but I want to recommend this book to you. It's called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. It's by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley, published by Crossway in 2016. It's really helpful in thinking through the issues of the conscience, how to train it, why you should obey it, how to work through these sorts of issues with others. And so I'd be glad. There are other copies in the bookstall that you can get or you can get at your favorite Christian bookseller. But if there is someone who has been a Christian for less than three years and is willing to read this and your hand goes up first, there it is. I got you. Come see me after the sermon. I'll make sure you get that. This book is really helpful in even just thinking through the the concept of what the conscience is. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, I think this is where we see the concept of, of the conscience playing out. It says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Blessed is that one. So part of the function of our conscience that is given to us by God on purpose is to pass judgment on our actions. The conscience sort of acts like a baseball umpire calling balls and strikes. What you did here is good. What you did there is bad. The conscience is is judging us like Jiminy Cricket. And when your conscience is judging your actions as wrong, it's not a good place to be. It hurts. Your spirit gets stung, as it were. We read about this in the life of King David, just as it's playing out in a narrative. And here's one example of it. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 10, it says this, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. His heart struck him. It's interesting language. I I trust that we all actually have had experiences like that, where you've done something and you're, you're sort of struck at the heart. You do something that was wrong, and afterwards you have remorse, you have fear, you have pain. You're heart-stricken. That is part of the God-designed function of the conscience. 
The conscience is meant to sting your heart when you do something that you know is wrong. It's a warning, just like when your body sends you that message that your brain says, hey, you just got stung, you might want to look into that. Your conscience strikes your heart and it says, hey, you just did something wrong, you should probably get that worked out. You should probably confess and repent. That's why Paul says someone whose actions are in line with his conscience is in a good place. That's what it says, blessed is that one. They're in a happy place. They are blessed, a state of blessedness. If you're not worried about wrestling with your conscience, that's a place of peace. That is a good place to be. You might know, too, that the conscience can become seared so that the the conscience isn't actually functioning in the way that it's supposed to. Maybe you, uh, I, I lived, I grew up living by train tracks. And so when people would come and visit the house, they would hear trains and I would be like, what train? I don't even know what you're talking about because I lived next to it. And so when I heard it, it just completely was not even on my radar. I didn't even hear it anymore. Those loud whistles and stuff, that's just part of the background noise. And that's a dangerous place to be when it comes to your conscience. So here's the thrust of what Paul, I believe, is saying. His whole point in this passage is saying this. If you're encouraging someone to ignore her conscience, you're setting her up for destruction. If her faith doesn't allow her to eat the meat, don't force her to eat the meat. Because what you're doing is you're training her to ignore the message that her conscience is delivering to her heart. And that is the opposite of what we should be doing for one another. So let me give you an example. Maybe someone has uh, recently converted to the Christian faith out of Mormonism. And one of the, the tenets of, uh, of Mormonism is that you're not supposed to drink caffeine. And so now this, this uh, young man has become a Christian and uh, he's getting together with these other Christians and they're all drinking coffee. And he's like, I don't understand why you guys are drinking coffee. It seems like that's not something we're supposed to do. How would you respond in that instant? This is the question. This is how this is hitting the, the ground here, okay? How are we going to respond in something like that? Here's the suggestion. You know what? I understand how you could think that that's wrong because you've trained yourself to think that it's wrong. But that's not accurate to what God has said is okay for us. So let me just show you in God's word. Let me read with you Mark 7, where Jesus calls all things clean. Let's read together Acts chapter 10, where Peter gets that vision of the sheet coming down, where he says, all things are clean, take and eat. But listen, if you think that it's wrong to drink the coffee, don't drink the coffee. And if this bothers you, I will not drink coffee right now too. I'm not really concerned about me drinking coffee. I'm more concerned about our relationship with one another. I want to build you up. I'm not here to drink coffee. That is a very different response. You just tell them to take it slow. Just learn about it some more. See if your conscience will allow you to drink your coffee in faith. The wrong thing to say is like, dude, cut it out. We can drink coffee. And then you buy him an orange mocha frappuccino and you say, take and drink that is the wrong thing to do because you're, you're training them to not listen to their conscience. That is unwise. That is unhelpful. And it actually could lead to his destruction because you're training him to act contrary to his God-given conscience. Think again about just the way that your body processes pain, those pain receptors. If you've been bitten by a snake and your brain doesn't register that, you're not receiving those messages of warning or of pain, you're going to be in very real danger. 
In a similar way, if you're not receiving or if you're ignoring that message that your conscience is sending to your heart, you could get in very real spiritual danger. You might start to stray so far off course into sin that you don't even recognize that you're off the course, that you've wandered away from the faith, that your conscience has been numbed and you're like a a walking dead man. You don't want to encourage someone to engage in behavior they consider wrong because you could potentially undermine his faith. So if your conscience isn't functioning like it should, you're in a dangerous place. This is Paul's point. This, this passage, though, sometimes is used in, in different ways. This passage really has to do with theological convictions. So sometimes these verses are used to say that we need to bear with one another's like emotional difficulties or, or physical susceptibilities to certain sins. Like if you know someone has a problem with alcohol, then you shouldn't drink alcohol in front of them. And that is a true principle, but that's not exactly what Paul is talking about here. Uh, One commentator, Doug Moo, helpfully points out that this passage is actually a little bit more narrow than that. It's more specific than that. This whole chapter has to do with theological weaknesses about areas of dispute. So some better examples of what this might look like for us here in a church today might be whether or not to homeschool or send your kids to public school. You might have theological reasons to disagree about that. So two people might be convinced on theological grounds that one is more faithful than the other, one of those two options. And that's okay. And you can have good faith conversations about that topic in humility, recognizing that you might be wrong and you might have room to grow. Or you could realize that for someone else in their situation, it's the right thing for them to do, even if it's not the right thing maybe for you to do. Two people might be convinced and disagree and still work towards unity. Not giving up your conviction, but agreeing to disagree in love. You'll note that our church covenant has nothing to say about education choices in it, which is to say that neither of those options defines us as a community sort of by, by design. The church covenant is not meant to bind our consciences on issues like that. So that means that we shouldn't devolve into mocking or making fun of or making passive-aggressive comments about one another's decisions about areas like that, things that don't matter in the final analysis uh, at this church, not to say that they're not important, but that they cannot, uh, they don't attack the gospel, the centrality of the gospel, and they don't hinder our work together as Christians for the sake of the gospel. We should be allowed to agree to disagree. You might, even if you're accidentally throwing shade on somebody, you might accidentally pressure someone to obeying your conscience without them being fully assured in their own mind, putting them in a bad place. So just general rule, don't be dropping banana peels behind you at Trinity Bible Church. I would encourage you to think about where you might need to love and forbear with one another in an area of potential disagreement. Uh, last time in our community group, we got to talk about some, some areas, uh, and somebody brought up the issue of mixed martial arts, MMA. Is that something that Christians should watch or not? It's a good question. How, how can we best care as stewards of God's creation? It's a great question. Uh, is the King James Version the best translation of the Bible? You should be able to disagree about these things and not have your fellowship jeopardized in any way. The conscience is an instrument 
and it works just like other instruments that might be functioning incorrectly. So if your oven clock says it's 7.32, but it's actually 7.30, well, then the instrument just needs to be calibrated a little bit. It needs to be fixed. You need to change that oven clock to match what time it really is. The same way your conscience might need to be switched, might to be altered. But as a general rule, coming from this passage, your best bet is to obey your conscience. Obey your conscience. Always seeking to have it calibrated patiently by trying to align it with the truth of God's word in the context of your local church. But in an act of guarding and loving one another, we should encourage one another to obey his conscience. Verse 23. If someone's acting contrary to his faith, he's engaging in sin, even if eating the meat isn't actually sinful. And so when a believer does what his own conscience doesn't approve of, he is engaging in sin. That's what I believe verse 23 is saying. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Acting contrary to faith is something that non-Christians do, not, not Christians. And so we should encourage one another to act in accordance with our consciences, patiently working towards maturity, charitable conversations, and good faith. But in the final analysis... The unity of the church and the glory of God should be our ultimate goal. So if you've got to be in your bonnet about actions that are relating to particular theological issues, stop. Think carefully about it. Don't put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Don't destroy the work of God, the one for whom Christ died. Don't destroy others by using your Christian liberty. Let's pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. After all, Christ has graciously laid down his own freedoms in order to save his people in a selfless act of mercy. And that includes you, Christians. If you're here not as a Christian, you have questions about the gospel, I'd be glad to talk to you about it in the lobby after the service. Let's pray.